Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 18, Don't Spill the Beans, Pythagorean Silence. In the last two episodes, we've been looking at the evidence for Pythagoras and the early Pythagoreans, respectively. We've been back in the 6th and 5th centuries BCE, trying to peer through a thick fog of legendary evidence to see if we could discern some of the historical reality behind the powerful Pythagorean mystique. Now it's time to embrace the mystique. For it was not primarily the figures that modern historians discern in the dim past of the Pythagorean movement that made their mark on the Western esoteric traditions, but precisely the legend, the mystique of the ancient Pythagoreans and their way of life, which inspired so much later esoteric thinking and rethinking. And the most powerful trope stemming from the Pythagorean material is the trope of silence. Our late antique sources, Iamblichus's On the Pythagorean Life, Porphyry's On the Pythagoreans, Diogenes Laertius's Treatment of Pythagoras, and a host of other references in other authors, are interested in a very different Pythagoras to the one we've been discussing. The Pythagoras we saw two episodes ago was not so much a philosopher in the commonly understood sense as a holy man or a magician of sorts. Their Pythagoras is of course a philosopher in the fullest sense, in fact the founder of philosophy as a practice. Incidentally, we don't know when this idea of Pythagoras as the first philosopher arises, but it certainly becomes the consensus by late antiquity. We've seen a split between two camps of Pythagoreans in the generation following the death of Pythagoras, the Akusmatikoi, who seem to have been following primarily the Pythagorean way of life, with its Akusmata and strict order of discipline and reincarnationist agenda, and the Mathematikoi, who were recognizably philosophers of a mathematical bent, working on problems like musical harmony, cosmology, and even exploring higher mathematics. For the late antique biographers, there was one ancient Pythagorean movement who seamlessly combined both of these tendencies. They are at once initiates into holy mysteries, which are themselves the essence of philosophy, and so the akusmata are read as having esoteric philosophical subtexts to do with metaphysics, and at the same time, explorers of the realms of the mathematical. Our Pythagoras and Pythagoreans seem to have had strong differences from Plato's thought in terms of first principles, and doubtless in other ways as well. For our biographers, on the other hand, Pythagoras basically held the tenets of what they took to be Plato's metaphysics, a one giving rise to all being, and the numbers acting as Plato's forms, immaterial archetypes of reality. Now, much of the reinterpretation of Pythagoras and his school, which occurred in later tradition, will be better understandable once we've looked at Plato himself, and it will make sense to discuss Neo-Pythagoreanism in that context as well. But in this episode, I want to break out of our chronological framework somewhat to discuss the birth and then the afterlife of the theme of Pythagorean silence and its development into a key topos of Western esotericism. It's a fascinating story involving both the mysteries and mysticism. Mystic secrecy and mystical silence. Stories of heroic literal silence and philosophic elitist secrecy. As we've mentioned, the Pythagoreans are already well known in Plato's day for a practice of silence. This is the 5th century BCE. We have several testimonies from Aristotle and others to secret doctrines among the Pythagoreans. 
Aristotle tells us, for example, that the Pythagorean doctrine that there were three types of rational beings, gods, men, and beings like Pythagoras, is among their utterly secret teachings. Now, we might ask, if it's so secret, how does Aristotle know about it? And why does he feel he can openly publish it like this if it's supposed to be such a big secret? As for the first question, how Aristotle knows about it, let's come to that in a minute. As for the second question, Aristotle is often just a bit disrespectful of other philosophers. He probably feels that he can publish Pythagorean secrets because he doesn't think that they're worth keeping. He doesn't take them seriously. But we just mentioned Plato's time, and here we are talking about Aristotle again. An earlier reference to Pythagorean silence comes from the Athenian orator Isocrates, a 5th and 4th century Athenian, pretty much an exact contemporary of Plato. Not to be confused, of course, with Socrates, Plato's teacher. Isocrates, similar sounding name, totally different guy. He is speaking about the Egyptians in one of his orations called Busiris, and we've already encountered the Egyptians associated with Pythagoras. Let's read the quote from Isocrates and see what he has to say. If one were not determined to make haste, one might cite many admirable instances of the piety of the Egyptians, that piety which I am neither the first nor the only one to have observed. On the contrary, many contemporaries and predecessors have remarked it, of whom Pythagoras of Samos is one. On a visit to Egypt, he became a student of the religion of the people, and he was the first to bring to the Greeks all philosophy and more conspicuously than others, he seriously interested himself in sacrifices and in ceremonial purity, since he believed that, even if he should gain thereby no greater reward from the gods, among men at any rate, his reputation would be greatly enhanced. And this indeed happened to him, for so greatly did he surpass all others in reputation that all the younger men desired to be his pupils, and the elders were more pleased to see their sons staying in his company than attending to their private affairs." And these reports we cannot disbelieve. For even now, persons who profess to be followers of his teaching are more admired when silent than are those who have the greatest renown for eloquence. End of quote. Obviously, there are lots of wonderful esoteric themes here, but let's just concentrate on the topos of silence for the moment. Here we have not just silence in the sense of secrecy, as we saw perhaps in our quote from Aristotle, but an actual act of silence. What does that mean? Well, the Pythagoreans are, quote, more admired when silent than are those who have the greatest renown for eloquence. What I find interesting here is the way in which Pythagorean silence is contrasted with eloquence, with the highest form of speech, and found to be more admirable. The theme of the Pythagorean philosopher whose act of silence is a superior form of wisdom is in fact the theme of this episode. Forget about the secret doctrines. They aren't really the point. The point is the act of silence itself, what you might call the rhetoric of esotericism, whereby the refusal to speak becomes a sign of a higher wisdom, or even a superior form of discourse. The quote we've just looked at is an early example of this theme, but it really becomes a major facet of the Pythagorean mystique throughout antiquity and into later traditions. In late antiquity, a number of depictions of Pythagorean philosophers appear, in which Pythagorean is synonymous both with literal silence and with an extended concept of silence, which is actually a superior form of discourse. Oh, and we should mention here the idea of the Pythagorean novitiate, which is something we haven't covered in previous episodes. The idea here is that when one became a Pythagorean, one had first to observe a five-year period of strict literal silence 
as in an oath of silence like some monastic orders practice. You just cannot open your mouth. We can't say what the origin of this story is, but it had become proverbial by late antiquity, the five-year silent novitiate, before you could even really begin to do Pythagorean philosophy in its full sense. It may well be that it actually reflects some genuine practice of the early Pythagoreans, perhaps in distorted form, or then again, perhaps not. It could be a complete invention. We just don't know. So let's begin to look at some of our late antique stories. There's an amazing tale recounted in chapter 31 of Iamblichus's On the Pythagorean Life, the provenance of which is uncertain and might belong to much earlier times, or it might not, we don't know. The tale takes place at the time of the persecution of the Pythagoreans in southern Italy. In this account, it is the tyrant Dionysius II of Syracuse who is doing the persecuting. Now, Dionysius reigned from 367 to 357 BCE, so the chronology doesn't actually work here. As we know, the fall of the Pythagoreans took place much earlier, as we discussed last episode, but never mind that. Iamblichus is writing hundreds of years later, so we'll cut him some slack. The point is, we're in classical antiquity, at the end of the time of the flourishing of the Pythagorean societies as a kind of political power in southern Italy. This is what Iamblichus tells us. Dionysius, being jealous that the Pythagoreans would not accept him into their sodality on account of his tyrannical ways, sends a force of troops to ambush some wandering members of the group. The Pythagoreans, being unarmed, turn and flee, but they encounter a field of beans, and so they cannot proceed on account of the Pythagorean prohibition against beans. Now, you might have thought that this prohibition was against eating beans, and it probably was, but by this time, or at least by the time that this story was created, it's become a prohibition against walking on beans, apparently. So the Pythagoreans turn at bay and make a stand to the last man using improvised weapons, but they're all killed. Having killed them all, the commander of the troops, Eurymenes, is dismayed because he was supposed to bring back a Pythagorean alive. However, his troops encounter two more Pythagoreans lagging behind the main group. These are identified as Milias the Crotonian and his pregnant wife, Timicha the Lacedaemonian, and they bring them to the tyrant. This is where we see Pythagorean silence as a form of discourse, even as a way of speaking truth to power by not speaking. So check this out. Dionysius begins by offering the two Pythagoreans co-regency with him out of his great respect for their philosophy. They, of course, refuse. So he then offers to release them if they will tell him one thing, why their companions had preferred to die rather than to tread upon the beans. Milius immediately replies, quote, they were ready to die rather than tread on the beans, but I would rather die than tell you the reason for this not treading on beans, end of quote. Milias refuses to spill the beans. Dionysius orders that Milias be taken away and that Timicha be put to the torture, reasoning that a captive woman deprived of her husband and pregnant would be bound to talk. He's like, no more Mr. Nice Guy. The pregnant lady's going to tell me what I want to know. Timicha, fearing this very weakness on her own part, bites off her own tongue and spits it out at Dionysius. Now, this gruesome tale contains several elements of interest. The first is the dramatic representation of the Pythagorean commitment to silence. They would rather die than break one of their precepts, but they would also rather die than reveal the esoteric meaning behind the precept. So we are in esoteric philosophy territory now. The original Pythagorean prohibition of beans 
an akuzma, has been given a secret meaning, which the tyrant wants to uncover. Whether or not the akuzmata actually had such secret meanings in the original Pythagorean movement is open to doubt, to say the least, but it's taken for granted in later philosophical tradition. Now this story is a very literal portrayal of silence. These philosophers are simply refusing to divulge a secret, but read gesturally, their actions convey lessons about the proper staunchness and reserve of the true philosopher, which bows to no pressure exerted by the unphilosophic world. Biting out one's own tongue is surely the most graphic possible representation of this stance. The story also tells us something very important about esotericism more generally, which maybe we should reflect on for a moment. Esoteric movements always posit in some way or another an inner and an outer group. Those in the know and those not in the know, the initiated and the uninitiated. This is basically the root meaning of the term esoteric. But this division can be, and surprisingly often is, a difference of rhetorical and social status rather than of what we might call a genuine difference in access to a given point of knowledge. In other words, it's usually not really about secret doctrines. It's like we said in the introductory episode of the podcast, this podcast is the secret history of Western esotericism, not because it's actually a secret. It's on the internet, so of course it isn't secret. But because we, as an esoteric podcasting elite, have invited you, the audience of initiates, to join our secret cabal. We are thus in a position to consider anyone who isn't a member of our audience as fools lacking the esoteric insights of the true initiated. So the title of the podcast is sort of playing with this dynamic within esoteric traditions. As we saw with the tradition of secrecy associated with the mysteries a few episodes ago, the number of occasions on which ancient people were accused of violating the secrecy of the mysteries, of Eleusis, did nothing to dent the reputation of those mysteries as the ultimate, inviolate, proverbial sanctuary of secret initiation. So the unrevealable ineffable reality that we find in later movements usually known as mysticism, the secret which cannot be told, not because it mustn't be told, but because it's actually impossible to tell it, is structurally prefigured by the Eleusinian initiatory secret, which cannot be told because no matter how many times people told it, it somehow maintained the mystique of being inviolable and untellable. What I'm getting at here is that powerful acts of silence, where someone publicly withholds knowledge, like saying, here is my secret podcast, are something very different from genuine secrecy, like you might exercise about state or military secrets or other concrete life and death matters, the, the pin code on your bank card. That's a secret. So perhaps when Aristotle tells us that God's men Pythagoras doctrine was a super secret Pythagorean teaching, perhaps we shouldn't understand that this really was so secret so much as something which was considered esoteric knowledge. We've seen that the books were published in antiquity associated with Pythagoras' school called Hieroi Logoi, sacred discourses. And we recall that the primary meaning of Hieros Logos was the mystic teaching heard at Eleusis and in other mystery cults. So the very title Hieros Logos implies that the content of the book is a secret. But if these Hieroi Logoi were really secrets, they would not have been published, obviously. What we're looking at here instead is a form of rhetorical secrecy, which doesn't hide anything, but rather reveals 
the fact that there is something special, something only for the inner elite, something of the highest value here, despite the fact that it's openly published. So I think that this story, and the ones we're going to look at next, of Pythagoreans whose silence is actually a superior form of discourse, are telling us something about the ways in which silence and the act of public secrecy can be used as forms of social capital, as ways of commanding a certain respect or a certain gravitas. And we've seen this, of course, in the quote from Isocrates, where the young men who flock to the Pythagoreans esteem their silence more greatly than they do the eloquence of the finest orators. Now, especially when we look at this in the context of Greek culture, where oratory already in Homer is like the field of battle, a place where men go to earn glory, kudos, we see that this is um, a great inversion of the usual order of business. The Greeks really, really admired eloquent speech. So for silence to take precedence over eloquent speech, there really has to be a lot of social capital invested in that silence. And this dynamic is really a dynamic which flows through Western esotericism down the ages, from ancient mystery cults all the way to the cheesiest New Age paperback bestseller. Secret knowledge sells. A sure sign of this is the fact that it is not only the somewhat unsympathetic Aristotle who reveals so-called Pythagorean secrets. Iamblichus and Porphyry, whose works on Pythagoreanism hold Pythagoreanism in the highest respect, reveal Pythagorean secrets at every turn. As Odo Kazel, whose 1919 thesis on ancient philosophic silence is still the go-to text for this stuff, if you can wade through the Latin, has remarked, quote, These writers, that's Iamblichus and Porphyry, blab about the Pythagorean silence in so many places that it almost makes you puke, end of quote. But if they hold these secrets in high respect, it surely follows that their revealing the supposed meaning of this or that secret doctrine isn't really disrespecting the secrets in question. They are, in fact, engaging in rhetorical acts of secrecy. Now, this story shares some other common features with other stories about silent Pythagoreans, which we shall get to in a moment. One of these commonalities is the way in which the silent philosopher is able to claim a victory over the might of the state. We might take it that Dionysius, in our story we've just read from Iamblichus, who's been explicitly rejected by the Pythagoreans as unworthy to join their group, stands for the class of uninitiates generally, as well as representing all the pressures which the worldly power can bring to bear on the philosophic initiate. In the context of Iamblichus's understanding of the Pythagorean philosophy, as the philosophy par excellence, this tale conveys both the superiority of philosophy to any worldly power and the power of the act of silence as the measure of this superiority. Philostratus's third-century biography of Apollonius of Tiana contains these same themes and amplifies them in typically late antique fashion, depicting the act of silence as a powerful form of discourse. Now, Apollonius of Tiana is a fascinating historical character who probably lived in the first century CE and whom we shall be covering later in the podcast. A wandering holy man and philosopher Apollonius was well known as a Pythagorean, but obviously this had come to mean something radically different in the period when he lived than it did in early classical Greece, and we'll have to get into what the differences might be when we discuss Neo-Pythagoreanism in more detail. Apollonius is very important in later traditions. He was sometimes used by pagan intellectuals as a counterweight to the figure of Jesus during the period when Christianity was on the rise. Your guy does miraculous cures and works all kind of wonders? Well, we have a guy like that too, and he's called Apollonius, and everyone knows about him. 
So stop bragging about your Jesus. He's just not that cool. Apollonius also has a fascinating afterlife as a sage in the Islamic world, and a large legendary and textual corpus is devoted to him in Arabic works of the medieval period under the name Bladinos. But for now, let's look at the life of Apollonius by Philostratus, a Roman literateur of the 2nd and 3rd centuries CE, which is our main surviving Greco-Roman source for the life of Apollonius, and see what kinds of stories Philostratus tells us about this hero of Neopythagoreanism. In this work, Apollonius is described at the outset as a Pythagorean philosopher. Philostratus explains his view of the ancient Pythagorean communities at the beginning of the book. Quote, Silence was imposed on them concerning divine things, for they heard many divine and secret matters, pola garteatikai aporretai equon, but it was difficult to control this information for anyone who had not first learned that to be silent is also to speak. Hotikaitosiopan logos. End of quote. So here we have silence as discourse, as well as esoteric elitism. This, for Philostratus, is the essence of what it is to be a Pythagorean. Oh, and being a vegetarian as well, he mentions. Apollonius, as depicted by Philostratus, is not concerned with doctrinal niceties or metaphysics, but with concrete representations of philosophic power. His wisdom allows him to perform miracles, such as raising the dead, appearing in two places at the same time, and casting out demons. So some of the feats of soul manipulation, which we've already seen associated with the name of Pythagoras, are present with Apollonius. He doesn't seek to teach philosophy, but to exercise power through his mastery of it. Sometimes Apollonius's gestures of philosophic power take the form of a spoken silence. His doctrinal statements such as they are, are all pretty much cliches, the sort of things one could find from these doxographic anthologies of philosophical sayings that were circulating in antiquity, but his silences are intended to speak volumes. Philostratus's Apollonius is asked why such a noble thinker and skilled speaker as himself had not written any book. He responds, because I have not yet been silent. He then proceeds to maintain strict silence for a five-year period in a kind of latter-day Pythagorean initiation, but without the Pythagorean Brotherhood. So he sort of like initiates himself into Pythagoreanism, I guess. But during this period of silence, he's far from silent. He roams the land, dispensing wisdom and setting right the affairs of men. Philostratus tells us that he's able to quell civil disturbances caused by hooligans through sheer silent gravitas and relates one incident where Apollonius finds the citizens of a town starving because of grain hoarding by profiteers. And Apollonius manages to arrange for the governor of the city to be properly chastised, the population fed, and the guilty parties publicly rebuked, all by means of hand gestures, silent facial indications, and in the case of the profiteers, by the expedient of writing down his judgment on a tablet and having the governor read it out to the assembled populace. The theme of silence as discourse is here given a, a very detailed narrative form. Apollonius's mastery of silence is also a form of wisdom. When Apollonius first meets his right-hand man, Damis, the latter offers to serve as his interpreter on their travels throughout the barbarian lands. But Apollonius declines his service, stating that he understands all the languages of mankind, although he's never learned them. When Damis is awed at this show of wisdom, Apollonius says, 
Do not wonder if I know all the tongues of men, for I even know the secrets of men's silences. That's just awesome. Silence is understood here again as a superior form of discourse to language. And it's just a good phrase. Oi de garde kai hosasioposin anthropoi. Another philosopher whose silence is depicted as discourse is Secundus, the silent philosopher, whose exploits are recorded in an anonymous account dating probably from the latter half of the 2nd century CE. It's a really cool text and largely forgotten, so be sure to check it out. This work begins, quote, Secundus was a philosopher. This man cultivated wisdom all his days and observed silence religiously, having chosen the Pythagorean way of life, end of quote. We do not find the slightest trace of Pythagorean themes or doctrine present in this work, with one small exception, which we'll get to. But to be Pythagorean means, for the author of the text, simply to be a philosopher who doesn't speak. Whoever the historical Secundus may have been, in this text he serves as a kind of symbol of silence as wisdom. The story runs thus. Secundus becomes famous for his wisdom and his absolute devotion to silence. The emperor Hadrian decides to test this devotion, and having summoned him, puts Secundus through various tests to attempt to persuade him to speak. Nothing. Then he tries to force him on pain of death. Still nothing. A tribune, whom Hadrian tasks with making Secundus speak, replies that, quote, You might persuade lions and leopards and other beasts to speak with a human voice before you persuade an unwilling philosopher. End of quote. So here we see again the theme of a staunch silence in the face of political power as a kind of victory. The emperor orders his executioner to take Secundus away, ostensibly to have him killed, but actually secretly gives him instructions to give Secundus one final chance to speak to save his life, but only to kill him if he actually does speak. If he remains faithful to his vow of silence, even being willing to die, he's supposed to bring him back to Hadrian. So, of course, Secundus doesn't buckle and refuses to speak even when the axe is right at his neck, so he's brought back to the emperor. Hadrian admits that he is indeed a wise man, and then puts a series of questions to him. These questions, dealing with the stock Pythagorean doxographical themes, such as what is man, what is intellect, these TSD questions that we mentioned last time, are answered by Secundus in the manner that we've already seen used by Apollonius, by writing the answers on a tablet. The answers, again, are pretty much stock doxographical fare. There's nothing particularly Pythagorean, just a lot of proverbial wisdom of a general philosophic character. Here, then, we have a depiction of philosophic silence in its most literal form, but again, the fact of silence does not deter discourse. In fact, it is Secundus's stubborn silence that allows there to be any discourse at all, since Hadrian had instructed his headsman to kill him if he uttered a word. Silence wins again. Now, no reason whatever is given for Secundus's silence, except for the fact that he is a Pythagorean philosopher. I take this to indicate that in the second century, when this text probably was written, the idea that a philosopher might choose absolute silence was familiar enough to the general reading public, probably through popular traditions about Pythagoreanism, that no explanation was thought necessary. It's just something Pythagorean philosophers do. Apollonius's gnomic silences are similarly signs that this is the case. While Philostratus does nod to the tradition of Pythagorean esotericism at the beginning of his book, 
No further context is given for Apollonius's silence. Again, we seem to be dealing with a widespread trope. There are these silent philosophers. They are Pythagorean. Part of what they do is just they don't say stuff. The instances of spoken silence discussed above evoke not simple philosophic elitism. In other words, we have secrets that cannot be spread about because we are philosophers and you are the many, the exoteric, uninitiated masses, and you can't learn our philosophic secrets. But instead, a kind of wisdom granting true power. In the case of Apollonius, we see miraculous abilities. The power of philosophic silence is also expressed in all three of the stories we've looked at here as social power. This is demonstrated in, in various ways, by the Pythagoreans' defiance of the tyrant Dionysius in Iamblichus' account, by Secundus' triumphant encounter with Hadrian, and by Apollonius' ability to stem riots and civil disturbances through the power of his philosophic silence. Apollonius' story actually raises the stakes of political influence here, where Iamblichus' Pythagoreans heroically defy a Hellenic tyrant, and Secundus demonstrates his superiority to the power of an emperor, Apollonius is shown running rings around two emperors, as well as sundry lesser civil authorities. In these cases, he's not actually exercising literal silence, but it is his privileged knowledge and spiritual power which allows him to deal with worldly power from such an unassailable position of strength. So I'd like to highlight a few points about this theme of silence. I'm quite fascinated by the ways in which public silence is used in esoteric writings and traditions. This will be clear from this episode, if it wasn't already. For scholarly work which explores this dimension of esotericism, be sure to check out the works of Koku von Stuchrad and Hugh Urban listed in the recommended reading for this episode. And I find in the figure of the silent Pythagorean philosopher a kind of narrative symbol of this dynamic, of the way, by privileging knowledge through labeling it as secret or esoteric, we raise its value. It's a bit like branding in the modern world of capitalism. There are plenty of products out there which try to entice you to buy them based on the idea that they're somehow exclusive or a cut above the rest, or by having product X it will be clear that you are one of those in the know, members of the club, right? But of course, this doesn't really make any sense. If these products are widely advertised, there can't be anything that exclusive about them. How many products are sold entirely based on the idea of taste and social belonging. We, the English upper classes, buy that particular brand of wax jacket because it's the proper one that we all buy, the English upper classes. It's a mark of being a member of the English upper classes, in fact. But of course, any nouveau riche with enough money to pick up the same exorbitantly priced jacket can join the club, right? And they will want to. But does this make the jackets lose their mystique of class and social capital? Not at all. The advertising is there to maintain the mystique in the face of reality, which exhibits a troubling number of wannabe aristos sporting this particular brand of jacket. In a similar way, the mystique around Pythagorean silence and esoteric silence more generally has a certain inviolability which cannot by definition be broken. And I think that is part of what these stories are telling us symbolized in narrative form. This brings us to the end of our Pythagorean trilogy. Next week, we shall discuss another pre-Socratic philosopher of a very different stamp, but one who, like Pythagoras, has a connection with riddles. Join us next week for Heraclitus of Ephesus. And until then, imitate the silent philosophers of yesteryear and stay esoteric.
even under penalty of death.